Welcome to the History of European Theatre podcast. My name is Philip and thanks for joining me on this journey through millennia of theatrical history. Episode 43, Roman Mime, It's Not What You Think. Last time, we emerged unscathed from the dark world of Senecan tragedy. You may feel a sense of relief that no work from any other Roman tragic playwrights has been left to us, so we can move on and away from his dark world. You may have noticed that I enjoyed Seneca rather more than I was expecting to. I probably need to think about what that says about me, and perhaps it is best to move on. And thankfully, in this episode, I'm going to look at the lighter side of Roman theatre. My intention was to produce a single episode to cover the two forms of drama that dominated the imperial period of Rome. But during my research, I found many interesting and surprising nuggets of information and stories to tell, so I've decided to split this last segment of the Roman theatrical story into two parts. However, the two forms are quite interrelated and have some common features, so I do see this as what could have been one very long episode split into two related parts. What we have are styles that began in the Republican period. Indeed, they'd been around in proto-forms for a very long time, but they dominated in the imperial period and the later empire. It's from this period that we get most of the information that we have. The decline of other forms of drama is quite marked and rapid. Although tragedies might have been performed and the comedies of Terence and Plautus and others were presented in revival, there's little evidence of any new plays being written and performed under the emperors and we enter a long period where we lack texts for any theatrical presentations. The Roman tastes moved on firmly in the direction of other theatrical entertainments, mime and pantomime. So for this episode, I'm going to focus on mime, with an episode on pantomime coming next. But before we get there, I wanted to correct an omission from previous episodes and include a little word on Horace. I've not previously found a good place for this, and here, before we are completely away from tragedy and comedy, seems to be as good a place as any. Horace didn't write plays, he was a poet and an essayist, and the first autobiographer some would hold. But he did write influential critiques of theatre, from which we get a lot of information and insights. We've already seen that there was a very active literary criticism scene in Rome through the ages. Cicero was perhaps the most vocal, but there were many others who penned their opinions, even up to Julius Caesar himself. What makes Horace, that's Quintus Horatius Flaccus, stand out in particular for us is his commentary known as the art of poetry. Horace was writing in the last decades of the BCE period. He was born in December 65 BCE, the son of a freed slave, and was schooled both in his southern Italy homeland and in Rome after which he travelled to Athens. He was certainly well-schooled in Greek and Roman literature and probably several languages. He died back in Rome in 8 BCE, a respected poet and commentator. The art of poetry is written as a poem and is full of epigrams advising authors in very practical ways about the creation of poetry and dramatic poetry. He takes a modified Aristotelian view of theatre with the work being written in a very similar form to the poetics. He sets out some clear rules. Firstly, there should be a firm distinction and separation between tragedy and comedy. Then, a play should have five acts, with only three speaking characters on stage at any one time. Gods should not be part of the action of a play, unless there's no other way to resolve the plot, and bring the play to a proper ending. The chorus shouldn't be used to advance the plot. 
but they should express the moral stance of the play, meaning, of course, that they should express a higher normative moral stance. The drama should entertain, but can also instruct. This particular maxim became very well known and often quoted, so much so that it became known as the Horatian platitude. He held that being truthful was paramount and extreme emotion should be avoided in case the audience and actors become overwhelmed by their emotional response to the work of the poet. He agrees with Aristotle that action, not words, should be the driving force of dramatic art. Character should be expressed by what protagonists do, not what they say. Dialogue should be plain and easily understood, with florid and overblown language to be avoided which ties in with his belief that overtly emotional actions and anything that strays too far from the status quo should be avoided. But he didn't abandon the emotional response entirely. The playwright, he says, must not write beyond his capabilities and should write on a subject that he understands well because he has to express what he knows as feelings, which are achieved through the action and the form of the play. He sees himself as building on the Greek heritage of theatre, but clearly there's a strong Roman slant here, with his ideas on restraint and adherence to rules and duty coming to the fore. Returning to Aristotle, he's a firm supporter of the unities of time, place and action. He takes Aristotle's rather tentative suggestion that the action should take place within the period of a single day and endorses it firmly. It's through his insistence on it, rather than directly from Aristotle, that this particular unity becomes overused in the 17th and 18th centuries in European drama. More generally, the work has had significant influence on later dramatists. It was known from the 5th century onwards, but was particularly influential in the Renaissance, where it became used as a framework for literary criticism. Horace makes his rules sound very prescriptive and a restraint from individual expression and experimentation in the theatre. But in its time, and through its rediscovery and influence in the Renaissance, there probably has been no single work of dramatic theory that has been so influential, bar Aristotle's own work. Perhaps his most practical advice is that poets should only listen to the professional critics and not to the empty praise of their friends. He also adds that once completed, a script is best put away for eight years. Only after that time can it be properly assessed to see if it is still good enough for performance. It's an interesting, if somewhat impractical, suggestion for most creatives. So now, let's look at Roman mime, which is very different from what we immediately think of as mime. As far as Roman mime goes, the first thing we have to get out of our thoughts is the image of a white-faced and gloved performer making gestures and other movements without words or singing. This style is a later development, which we may get to at some point. For the Romans, a mime was essentially a short comic play, and as such, it shared many elements with the comedies that I've already discussed in previous episodes, the Fabula Paligata and the Fabula Togata by Plautus, Terence and others. What makes mime different from the comedies can be summed up as follows. Mimes were short skits with simple plots, and they included a greater portion of dance and music than were seen in the regular plays. It's likely that women were allowed to perform in this form of entertainment. As you know, they weren't allowed to perform in the plays, and it's not clear at what point they were allowed to be involved with mime plays. But by the imperial period, and even sometime before that, there's good evidence that they were. 
The humour and jokes were often bawdy, and probably even obscene at times, much more so than in the plays. Masks were probably not worn, although that assertion is contested, and as far as I can see, there's no conclusive evidence either way. However, to me it does seem rather unlikely that there would be just this one form of theatrical art that didn't make use of masks, where all the others did, but that is just an opinion. My maptors uniquely wore a rachinium. This was a garment similar to the pallium, but shorter and included a head covering. Maybe a shawl with an attached long scarf might be the best way to describe it. They also didn't wear the soft shoes used by the other actors. In fact, they went barefoot, which led to the mime actors being called paniplus, or flatfoot. The mimes probably included a large portion of improvisation around a basic well-known story that was the core of the play. So you can see that there are lots of caveats there, and I have to reiterate that unquestionable facts about mime in the period are hard to come by. The mime plays probably originally came from Greece, where there was a similar tradition for comic short plays. It's generally assumed that in the Greek colonies on the Italian mainland, this form then became mixed with the local Attilan plays and the rustic farce of the village harvest celebrations that marked regular points in the year of the subsistence farmer. Just as a reminder, the Attilan plays are thought to have been rustic comedies that used stock characters to retell handed-down comedies and other stories. Originally, they would have been presented in the local Ossian dialect, but then were performed in Latin as they moved slowly towards Rome in the 1st century BCE, probably carried by troops of travelling players following seasonal markets and religious festivals. We don't have a good picture of if there is a direct relationship from Attilan to mime plays, but it seems likely that the mime is the inheritor of that local rustic form of drama that existed in the Greek colonies and among the Italian locals. The idea that the history of mime is rooted in Greek performance is supported by the names of performers that from early on and throughout the history, well into the period of empire, carry Greek names. It's possible that performers named themselves after their predecessors rather than being of Greek origin themselves, but this is a strong tradition and it's generally thought quite likely to be based on fact. Mime was officially featured in the Ludi festivals quite early on and it seems that it was a particularly prominent form in the springtime Ludi Floralis festival, which is perhaps a reflection of its history developing out of the rural celebrations. Not just confined to theatre settings and buildings, mime was likely also performed in the street and in more private settings at dinner parties and other social events. From these early beginnings, the popularity of mime grew, living alongside theatrical comedy and tragedy until it supplanted them and was second only to pantomime during the imperial period. The form got a popular boost when Sulla, the general who held dictatorship in Rome from about 81 BCE, associated openly with mime artists and went a long way to legitimising them in Roman society. The popularity of mime maintained through the Civil War period and the beginnings of empire, when relative peace and expanding wealth in the city under Augustus resulted in, among many other things, growing support for mime and pantomime. As there are no surviving scripts for mime, we rely on descriptions and illustrations for the details that we have, and not very much is certain. The only textual evidence we do have are some fragments of Roman mimes written in Greek that have been found in Egypt. These originate from its time as a Roman province, having been dated to about the 2nd century CE. 
One of these fragments appears to be a mime that parodies the tragedy by Euripides, a phigeneer at Taurus. In fact, this fragment comes from the same hoard found at Oxyrhynchus, where the satire play Trackers by Sophocles was discovered. The fragment is in poor condition, and there's been much speculation about it. That it is the parody of a play, or possibly several plays, seems clear enough, and that suggests that the audience knew these original plays, or at least the version of the myth that they told. After all, parody only works when the audience is knowledgeable about the work that's being parodied. The characters in the play, apart from the main protagonists, are given generic names like Attendant, Fool and Woman One, which suggests that the mimes continued the use of stock characters. The fragment includes some symbols that haven't been conclusively interpreted, but may indicate musical accompaniment. The crash of a cymbal, or the beat of a drum, for example, and there's also some stage directions. At one point, the fool is directed to let out a fart, which perhaps tells us the level of humour that the play involved. The story in this retelling is set in India, and there are several characters indicated simply as natives. Their speech is a gobbledygook language, but speculated to be an attempt to pronounce sounds that are close to some Indian languages. Given the trade between Rome and the Indian subcontinent in the later imperial period, some knowledge of native Indians might have been assumed for those involved in the business of imports and exports. But for the general population, this must just have been seen as generic exotica rather than being a meaningful parody of an Indian language. Surviving titles of the mind plays suggest that the subject matter was not always the traditional mythic stories, but any tale that could be turned to comic entertainment. The fisherman, the wedding, the prison, the pauper and his unexpected wealth, the rope dealer and the ghost are just a few examples. Adultery, perhaps not surprisingly, seems to have been a common subject. The hiding of the lover when the master returns unexpectedly was the main joke. We can get some idea of this from Horace, who in his satires appears to describe such a mime. In a passage where he's advising his reader to avoid adultery, he describes the following scene. Folded in two, your knees crushing your head, all closed up shamefully in a chest, where the mistress has hidden you, aware of both your wrongdoings. There are conflicting views on just how crude mimes became, but we can be sure that there were some concerns over the morality of mimes, because they often touched on racy subject matter. Writing in Marseille in the 1st century CE, Valerius Maximus recorded that the city did not allow mime performance, because most of the plots involved adultery, and it was feared that such examples might lead to imitation amongst the population of the city. It's possible that this was just an extreme and localised reaction, but there are also reports of mimes performing naked and simulating sexual acts. Balancing this, there is evidence that suggests that mimes usually ended with moral and legal punishment for those characters who offended common decencies or displayed excesses in their characters. In another recollection, Valerius Maximus tells us how the crowd at the mime performance at the Spring Festival were disappointed when an actress would not perform naked. This was out of respect for Senator Cato, known for his stern moral stance and adherence to traditional values, who was in the audience. On hearing the reason for the crowd's displeasure, Cato made to leave the auditorium so that the performance could continue in the usual way. Shamed, the crowd applauded him, called him back and asked for the actress to continue with her clothes on and dignity intact. It's in relation to mime and from the pen of Cicero that we first hear of a curtain being used to hide a stage before the start of a performance, 
and being raised to reveal the opening scene. The innovation seems to have come about at about 100 BCE and then been taken up in many of the temporary theatres from then on. As part of the festivals, mime also became part of a religious function, so presumably only subjects considered suitable for the more serious context were presented. A collection of some 700 moralistic aphorisms taken from mimes was put together in the 1st century BCE, suggesting that there was a significant portion of mimes that were at least partly serious. It's in part this diversity and range that makes the mime so hard to pin down as a single form. From street comedy to religious morality, from bawdy sex comedy to criticisms of the elite, it held sway in row for hundreds of years, and yet we have little physical evidence of it. As we've already seen with the grandeur and lavishness associated with the theatre buildings, when the citizens of Rome took to something, they had the ability to lavish their wealth on it. As its popularity grew, more and more money was spent on productions, and the best exponents of the art became the stars of their day. Mime artists had little status in law, but they were favoured by the imperial family, who from Augustus onwards enjoyed mime and pantomime, and the senatorial and equestrian classes followed the imperial lead. Mime artists found rich patrons and became the mistresses and paramours of some of them. The arc of their popularity mirrors that of the empire, and as its wealth grew, so did the grandeur of the plays and the appreciation of the artists. Mimes had probably always included an element of satire, but as they became emboldened by popularity and reacting to the imperial excesses, this side of mime seems to have become more pronounced. But political satire in Rome was a dangerous thing. Emperor Tiberius, the immediate successor of Augustus, had a reputation for badly mistreating women, regardless of their rank. Suetonius reports that one Malonina, a woman of good birth, refused to submit to his desires for her, so she was put on trial on falsified charges. Realising she was not going to get any sort of free hearing, she left the court and stabbed herself to death at home. These events shocked Rome, and after that Tiberius turned up in mimes and farces which portrayed him as an ugly old man called the Old Goat. The plays were, Suetonius says, received with great applause, and on this occasion there's no mention of reprisal from Tiberius on the actors. Others were not so lucky. Caligula ordered an actor to be buried alive after he took offence to an allusion to him in a mime play. And when Vespasian died, a play was presented parodying his funeral. In a reference to his notorious meanness with money, in the middle of the play his corpse sits upright and asks how much all this ceremony was costing. Ten million sesterces came back the answer, at which point the dead emperor declared that they should give him a hundred thousand and throw his body in the Tiber. The joke was reportedly met with uncontrolled laughter from the large crowd gathered for the performance. Emperor Nero was a lover of all things theatrical, to the extent that he performed in mime plays for the members of his court. Their appreciation was no doubt effusive if forced. Paris the Elder was one of Nero's favourite performers, but in the end, jealous of his growing popularity, Nero had him executed. And it seems appropriate to close out on mime with a brief mention of the women performers who were allowed for the first time. Some gained fame and notoriety. Many funerary inscriptions relate to mime performers, usually praising their artistry, and some of them are women. A freed slave and mime artist was mistress to the poet and orator Cornelius Gallus, and then to Mark Antony, until being passed over for Cleopatra. Much later, and an empire away, 
Justinian ruling the Eastern Roman Empire in Constantinople in 527-565 to CE took mime performer Theodora as his empress and made her the most powerful woman in the empire. When he banned all foreign entertainers from the city, mimes were exempted from the decree. Perhaps those two facts are not unrelated. It's difficult to come up with a succinct description for what mime was and what it meant to the Romans. Perhaps comparing it to Victorian Music Hall gives us something of its flavour, but at times it was far more serious than that, and at other times more religious. But it did attract a cross-section of audience in the same way, and mix low and highbrow art while being something different from the tragedies and comedies presented as full-length plays. The breadth, diversity and longevity of the form is the problem. We have to assume it evolved over those many hundreds of years and it's likely that at times it became more satiric or more religious, more respectful or more comic as the artistic tastes and political situation changed over time. At times it certainly pushed the boundaries for acceptability. We have to remember, and it's a point that we'll hear more about in the next episode, that theatre and mime and pantomime in particular were not only very popular but supported by the rulers of the time and used as a political tool and as a means of mass communication. Come to the theatre and see my support for you, the people of Rome, through this theatre, this mime, this pantomime, was the message. At least at the times when the emperors were not so inverted as to pervert the artistic forms for their own narcissistic pleasures. Next time, we look at mime's big brother, pantomime. It's another dramatic form where we have to forget any preconceptions the name might shout out at us. But there is a little more information available about it and some great descriptions from some of the most famous writers in the Roman canon. So please, do join me next time for the silent art of pantomime. I look forward to your company next time. If you have a spare moment, a review posted on Apple Podcasts would really help other like-minded people find us and please do spread the word on your social media whenever you can. Join us on Twitter for all sorts of theatre-related talk, and there's also the Facebook group for regular updates. If you'd like to support the podcast, please find us on patreon.com or go to ko-fi.com to leave us a tip just to say thanks. Any and all support helps offset the costs of running the podcast and keeps the coffee pot bubbling, and is gratefully received. Thank you so much for your support, and if you have any comments or concerns in the meantime, you can contact me by email at thoetp at gmail.com or via Twitter at thoetp. Thank you.